come now to the reading of God's word before the sermon. Uh, I just want to read for you the scripture for today. It comes from the book of Psalms, chapter 139, verses 13 to 16, and also James chapter 1, verse 27. This is the reading of God's word. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when I was yet uh, when as yet there was none of them. In James 1.27, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is the reading of God's word, and now let's hear the preaching of God's word. Good morning, my name is Daniel. I'm the Artesia campus pastor here at this church, and so it's always a pleasure to be uh, at Fullerton to, with this great privilege of bringing the word of God. Today's topic is indeed a weighty one, and uh, as you have heard today, it, in August we begin our missions month, and this topic is not quite a missions-related topic. Uh, however, we do have, after this message, a very special presentation from a local nonprofit organization uh, one of our uh, cherished partners, so uh, you can look forward to that. But the task at hand at this moment, uh, indeed, is this weighty, uh, weighty is such an understatement, this weighty task of speaking on abortion. And of course, abortion was brought into the spotlight in a very big way on June 24th when the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. And this was more than a month ago now. And we know many of you have been wondering about our church's response to this. Uh, some have even contacted us directly. And your pastors, including myself, definitely wanted to take our time in addressing this. We wanted to do our research. We wanted to have a lot of conversations first, uh, even amongst one another, the fellow pastors, but also with the women who are part of our staff, uh, with other women as well uh, from our congregation, and of course, we wanted to take our time and do our due diligence because this topic, abortion, is a complex and sensitive issue. It's a very emotionally charged issue because on one side, for many, this is an issue about protecting the most vulnerable of lives, those lives in the womb. And then there are many others for whom this is an issue about women's rights and for the thriving of women and even potentially their children down the line. And we recognize that we need to speak humbly about this topic because, quite frankly, your pastors are not women. We are not women. We will never experience what it's like to even have the potential of getting pregnant, much less an unwanted pregnancy. We will never experience what it's like to go through the pains and the difficulties and the drastic changes of being pregnant, of having a body, the body of our child growing inside of us. We'll never experience that. We'll never experience the pains of delivery, of recovery, of nursing. And so we must speak humbly about this. In addition to that, we never want to treat abortion as a mere topic, be it a political one or even a theological one. 
Because we recognize this is a real life experience for so many of us in this room. Either directly or in the lives of the people we love. We know abortion is never an easy decision for women. It's usually a gut-wrenching decision. Women in this situation feel helpless, alone. They feel like they don't have any other options. And so many women, of course, in this situation are from poor and underprivileged communities. And oftentimes, especially in the church, there is so much guilt and shame afterwards. Of course, there are men who wrestle with guilt and shame when it comes to abortions as well. But the terrible and unfair reality is that so many times men don't have to wrestle with the guilt and shame because they just disappear. And it's terrible. As a preacher of the gospel, I want to make clear to you today If this is something you've gone through, if abortion is part of your story, you do not have to hold on to that guilt and that shame. Jesus Christ took that very same guilt, that very same shame, and he carried carried it up all the way to the cross. No matter what you've done, you are not beyond the reach of God's grace. You are not beyond the reach of God's favor towards you, his smile upon you. You are not beyond the reach of God's healing and restoration for your life. And when you put your faith in Christ, you can know with absolute certainty that God loves you. And he's not ashamed to call you his daughter, to call you his son. If there's anything you walk out of here knowing, if there's only going to be one thing you walk out of here knowing, I pray and I hope that it's that. But of course, there's so much more to talk about. We have to approach this topic with compassion. And having compassion doesn't mean that we shouldn't say anything. But it does mean it changes the way we say it. Having compassion also means we want to listen before we speak. I encourage all of you, if you're going to have thoughts and strong opinions on this, please have important conversations, especially with people that you might disagree with and still hear them out. And although compassion may not necessarily change your stance, it most certainly will change your posture. And today we don't approach the overturning of Roe v. Wade with a posture of gloating or some sense of triumphalism. And there are many things where there is some room for disagreement, even amongst us pastors, on smaller details, on on little things. But I do want to share with you what we do affirm, what we do completely agree on. And uh, I have it, it's a fairly lengthy statement, so I have it written for you above. We, the pastors of CCSC, affirm that the scriptures are clear that life in the womb, like all human life, is sacred. And therefore, abortion is immoral, except in the case of saving the life of the mother. When it comes to public policy, due to its inherent nuances and complexity, there are a variety of political stances Christians may have. Nevertheless, the Christian must not disregard or deny the scriptures in coming to any such stance. Our understanding of abortion, both both biblically and politically, must be covered with compassion in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this compassion should lead to practical care for women, children, and families in need. We're going to spend the rest of our time unpacking this statement by simply asking three questions. First, what does the Bible say about abortion? Secondly, how do we apply what the Bible says in the realm of politics when it comes to abortion? And lastly, how does the gospel influence 
this conversation about abortion. So let's get right into it. What does the Bible say about abortion? Here's the relevant part of that uh, statement that I just read for you. The scriptures are clear that life in the womb, like all human life, is sacred and therefore abortion is immoral except in the case of saving the life of the mother. As Christians, we start from a position of acknowledging that it is God who gives life. It is God who created humankind in his own image. And that's why we are not to take the lives of other human beings unjustly. That's why the sixth commandment forbids murder. That's why uh, the sixth commandment also forbids causing death through carelessness or negligence. I don't think that's too controversial, right? That's our starting point. But what does the Bible say specifically about abortion? The Bible does not directly address the act of abortion, but it does make clear the sanctity of life in the womb, the sacredness of life in the womb, that the life in the womb, like all human life, is precious, valuable to be protected. As we read in Psalm 139, we see phrases like this, for you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. That word unformed substance in the Hebrew can be translated quite simply as embryo or fetus. And I do want to draw special attention to that phrase. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Stands out a little bit. In the depths of the earth. And Bible scholars will tell you that that phrase, depths of the earth, is a metaphor for deepest concealment. It's a poetic, flowery way of saying, of talking about that which is unseen, which is secret, which is hidden, just like it says earlier in that verse. The point being, even when no one knows or sees what's happening in the mother's womb, even before the mother is aware, it's a secret, it's a complete secret, it's completely hidden, it's deeply concealed. Even the mother's not aware yet that she's pregnant. The Lord sees and knows this child. He has a relational love and care for this child. It it exudes from this psalm. And there are other places in the Bible that support this view. In the Gospel of Luke chapter 1, John the Baptist is described as being filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb. This along with other passages like Psalm 51.5, Jeremiah 1.5, all make the case for the personhood of this child in the womb. And therefore, the child in the womb is precious to be protected. One interesting passage to note is Exodus chapter 21, verses 20 to 22 to 25. I'm not going to go into it. That's a whole other sermon in and of itself, but I'll just explain it a little bit. It's an interesting passage which communicates a very specific Israelite law which gives special protection to a pregnant woman and the child in the womb. And it shouldn't be too surprising uh, that there's a law like that in the Old Testament, uh, in the Israelite law, because we see laws like that all the time, even now. There are many laws like that in our country, and even in California. Uh, California has its own laws that criminalize violence done to a pregnant woman that might cause the death of the fetus. Basically, if you hurt a pregnant woman with deliberate malice, as the law says, and cause the child in her womb to die, it's considered murder in California. And perhaps I can take a moment to pause here, uh, especially if there are anyone who is listening who, for whom the Bible is not an authority. I'm quoting all these Bible verses, but for you, it's like, that doesn't mean much to me. 
For you, maybe the Bible is not sufficient for this question of the morality of abortion. But I do want to just ask, we have to ask ourselves honestly, as difficult as it may be, why do laws like these exist? Whether we're talking about Israelite law or California law, why do laws like these exist that protects the child in the womb of the pregnant woman? Is it simply, is the reason for these laws simply the desirability of that child? Or is it something more? Is it something innate? An innate dignity, an innate value, an innate worth to that child in the womb? Should that child in the womb be protected only because he or she is wanted? Or is it something more? You do have to ask yourself honestly. And nevertheless, for the Christian, I would hope that for you it's clear from the scriptures that these lives are indeed valuable innately because they are human lives created in the image of God. And for us, I'm going on and on with these Bible verses and all these things, not because I care about the politics or not because it's some kind of cultural matter for me or for any of us in the church, But we talk about this, we must talk about this, because it is a matter in which we submit to the Word of God. We submit to the authority of God. Even when it goes against so much of what the world is telling us. So that is what we believe the Word of God says. But here's the second question. How do we apply what we believe from the Bible in the realm of politics when it comes to abortion? I'll read the statement for us, the relevant part. When it comes to public policy... Due to its inherent nuances and complexity, there are a variety of political stances Christians may have. Nevertheless, the Christian must not disregard or deny the scriptures in coming to any such stance. You've probably heard it before that as Christians, we believe we are to do good for the the welfare of our earthly city. Even while ultimately being citizens of the heavenly city. We still care about our earthly city. And to be good citizens here in the United States in this democracy, that doesn't mean we are to be involved in politics to varying degrees. At the very least, at the level of voting. And so this isn't something we could ignore. And I do want to be clear. We do abide by the separation of church and state. We're not trying to create a state religion Uh, The Bible never gives us that sense that that's something we ought to pursue. Uh, We're not trying to make America into a Christian nation. We're not trying to win back America for Christ. That's not one of our goals. But on the flip side of that coin, we also believe that the government shouldn't be able to tell the church what to believe or how to believe it. And that goes for the mosque, the temple, the synagogue, and other faith communities as well. And as the leadership of the church, we're not going to tell you how you you should vote on any particular bill or for any particular politician. And the reason for that is not because we think politics is unimportant, because I just established we do believe it is important to be good citizens. It's also not because we want to avoid controversy, although it's generally a good practice to always try to avoid controversy. But the reason we're not going to tell you how to vote is this. When the church comes up and says, this is how you should vote, this is what you should support politically, this is what the Christian should do. In effect, what we're doing is we're saying to vote or support otherwise 
is a sin. We call that, we have a phrase for that. We call that binding your conscience. And it's a great reformation principle that we are very careful about what we bind your conscience about. We have to be so clear that the word of God makes it so clear that this is what you must do. And then we could bind your conscience about that because we submit to the word of God. But once again, due to the the complexity and many nuances of public policy, we cannot legitimately or confidently bind bind your consciences in political matters. We leave that up to your conscience and to your wisdom. But even if the church will never tell you how to vote or what to support politically, Please don't think that your Christian faith has nothing to do with your politics. Please don't make this mistake of compartmentalizing so extremely as if uh, my, my faith is just one little segment of my identity and then there's all these other areas in which I operate where I don't consider my faith. No. So much of politics has to do with morality and ethics. And naturally for the Christian, your understanding of justice, your understanding of order, your understanding of what is good, what is evil is going to be influenced by your faith. It's going to come into play somehow. So that makes it harder. The task before us as individual Christians is to make sure what the scriptures say and your political views are not at odds. And guess what? A lot of times it's going to be very hard. That's okay. It's okay if it takes a while to figure things out. It's okay if it requires a lot of conversations with a lot of different people, a lot of research, a lot of reading. And even then, it may not always be so clear-cut. And that's okay. We still make that effort to be consistent and faithful to the Word of God in the midst of that. A beloved professor of uh, many of your pastors, Dr. David Van Drunen, uh, he wrote this in one of his books. I think it's a great summary of where we stand. Here's what he writes. It's kind of a long quote. Bear with me, but it's, it's very good. To be effective in such a fallen world, Christians cannot simply assert that in an ideal world, abortion should always and everywhere be illegal. Christians must consider how to live consistently with their conviction about the evil of abortion in a world that is very far from ideal. And this requires judgments that depend upon discernment and wisdom. Judgments about which Christians equally commit to Scripture may disagree. While Christians should never promote abortion as a social good, there are many different ways in which they might oppose abortion. And he actually then goes on to give various examples to illustrate. He talks about uh, there being a pro-life candidate and a pro-choice candidate, and you happen to think that the pro-choice candidate is a better candidate. You have to think the, the pro-choice candidate will uh, do more good for the city, for our country. Well, who do you vote for? And his point is, there's no right or wrong way that Christians can legitimately vote for either. He gives the example of a legislator who is Christian, and she is presented with a bill that will reduce the number of abortions in her city or state, but it won't make it illegal. Can she still support it, or does she have to deny it? And Dr. Vanderden's point is, Christians can legitimately disagree on that. And just in general, broader political strategy, he talks about how there's so many ways to go about it, concluding ultimately that these, these are all weighty, weighty matters, needing wisdom, but not something that the church can tell you, this is the right way, or this is the wrong way. But what we can say 
is please make sure you are not denying or disregarding the scriptures throughout this hard process. And for you, maybe your concern as a Christian is not so much whether or not abortion is legal, but on other issues that may reduce the number of abortions. Perhaps issues like sex education, better access to contraception, better care and incentives for working women who get pregnant, such as paid maternity leave and better access to childcare. Or how about this one? Enforceable accountability measures for men who get women pregnant and then leave them. The list can go on and on. And the point is there's no one way to go about it. So let me summarize with some questions. If I truly hold to my biblical convictions, my Psalm 139 convictions, as well as other passages, does that mean that I need to be a Republican? Does that mean I must support only Republican candidates and Republican measures? No. If I truly hold to my biblical convictions, does that mean that I have to even support and celebrate the overturning of Roe v. Wade? I don't know, maybe this one's a little more controversial. But the answer that we give is not necessarily. Many Christians celebrate the overturning of Roe v. Wade, understandably. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I am aware of some Christians who are truly pro-life, who still felt uneasy about the ways that the overturning of Roe v. Wade came about. There's different ways to look at it. But the bottom line is this. Should I want there to be fewer abortions? Quite sim- It's a simple question. Should I want there to be fewer abortions in my own life, in my family, in my church, in my community, in my country, ultimately the world? If I, believe, if I hold to my biblical convictions, the answer is yes. The answer is yes. If I do believe that the Bible says these lives in the womb are precious and to be protected, then the answer is yes. But how you approach politics in light of that desire, in light of that aim, we leave that up to you. I know sometimes we want, to be, we want a clearer answer than that. This is how you should go. This is it. And this is the only way. But we just can't honestly give that to you when it comes to politics, even when we're so clear on what the Bible says about life in the womb. That's the view of politics. And lastly, how does the gospel influence this conversation about abortion? Our understanding of abortion, both biblically and politically, must be covered with compassion in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This compassion should lead to practical care for women, children, and families in need. If you are a Christian in this room, then you are a person who has received the most profound compassion in the history of the universe. You've received it. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he came into our broken world and he looked upon sinners like myself and sinners like yourselves and he treated us instead as friends and like a good friend, like a good older brother, He laid himself down. He gave himself up. He gave himself away, especially by dying on a cross so that you and I could have forgiveness, hope, healing, and a new home, a new identity as sons and daughters of the living God. And when you put your faith in Christ, there's no sin that's too big. The blood of Jesus is strong enough to wash away every sin. 
We believe that and we want to be creating a culture within our church and within our families and within our lives that reflects that so well. Not a culture of shame and exclusion, but one in which the love and compassion of Jesus is so evident. Because people who have received a compassion like that will be changed from the inside out. It makes you compassionate. That's why James says in James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. As Christians, we have to recognize these are two sides to the same coin. We don't want to just be clear about what we're against, but we want to be clear about what we're for. We want to be clear about the fact that we're for the orphan and widow. To visit orphans and widows in this Bible verse here means to be for those who are less fortunate. To be for those who are most vulnerable. And that's a running theme throughout the whole Bible. That God is for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. And you can very easily fit in the woman in crisis, the single mom, the child who's in the foster care system into that verse. It fits perfectly. It's not limited to specifically just orphans and widows that James is talking about here. But those in need, those who need care, those who need support. That's the kind of culture we want to create. One in which if there was a a woman in crisis in our midst, if there's one today, and there very well may be more than one, there might be several in our congregation. And she's contemplating abortion. Would we surround her with so much support, so much care, not just emotionally and spiritually, but even with our time, our resources, our money, our energy? Is that the kind of culture we're creating? To be honest, I can't say, I can't say if we're doing a good job on that or not, but all I know is we need that. You know, when Roe v. Wade got overturned, There were some Christians on social media using this phrase, the hard work starts now. Now that Roe v. Wade is overturned, the hard work starts now. And understandably, many people were offended by that statement, by that sentiment. Because the hard work should have already been happening a long time ago. Women in crisis, children in crisis should have been cared for all along even when abortion was legal in the whole country. It's very understandable if you should feel like it's too late if the hard work is only starting now. But you know who else that phrase was offensive to? That phrase of the hard work starts now? It was also offensive to the many, many people, many of whom are Christians who have been doing the hard work for decades and decades. An author by the name of Lauren Green McAfee writes this, citing also uh, 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 her research and statistics. A recent study concluded believers, Christians, are nearly three times more likely to adopt than the general public, unwanted children. Believers are more likely to be generous with their time and finances for those in poverty. And it's almost exclusively people of faith who run the pregnancy care centers in our country, caring for the woman in crisis. And then she concludes, still more must be done. There are so many 
who have been involved in that hard work, in caring for the orphan, in caring for the widow, in caring for the children in the foster care system, caring for children in need of adoption, caring for women in crisis, such as pregnancy centers. You may have heard a well-known story of Brook Hills Church in Alabama, which literally met all the needs of the foster care system in their county, with over 160 families signing up to help with foster care and adoption. It's remarkable. It's beyond remarkable. But these sorts of stories are too rare. We don't just sit here touting the work of other Christians. We all need to ask ourselves, what is my part? What is my part? What is my church's part and my part as an individual, as a follower of Christ? What is my part in caring, in visiting the orphan and the widow? What is my part in caring for and supporting the woman in crisis, the child in need? And of course, I'm not saying we need to be involved with every single cause and every single way of helping. But I, what I am saying is James 1.27 calls us to this sort of compassion. And if you have received the compassion of Christ over you, then you should also be motivated. We are called to care not about issues as Christians. That's not the most important thing for us, the issues, the issues. We are called to care for people in fullness, in their full circumstance and situation, in all that is part of their story. We are called to love and care for people because Christ cared for us first. That is our call. The gospel, first and foremost, is true for you. All who are in Christ are covered, are loved, are cared for, our family, no matter what you've done in the past. And now we want to continue to give that love, share that love, give away that love. Before we close, it's my pleasure at this time to introduce a great organization who has been doing that hard work that I just shared about. This organization is called Living Well Pregnancy Centers. It is an organization that has been caring for women in crisis for decades. And some of the pastors of our church, including myself, got introduced to Living Well uh, during the thick of the pandemic, when everything was on Zoom. But fortunately, very soon afterwards, we were able to uh, actually visit their facility and see the place where their great work is being done, that hard work is being done. And, of course, we've wanted to further our partnership with them ever since. And then today, you know, being missions month as well as the topic of the sermon today, we thought it was so fitting that we would have them come and introduce themselves. So I want to introduce to you uh, Dr. Gita Swamidas. She is the founder and president of Living Well Pregnancy Centers. Please welcome her up as she shares about Living Well. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me here. I, I'm just so blessed, so blessed. You know, I've been doing this for over 38 years now and been to so many churches all over the country and in other countries too. But this was such an encouraging message. Thank you. Thank you so much for a pastor to be able to stand up and with so much love and compassion share the truth. You are truly blessed. Thank you for having me too. Um, Boy, as I look back on these years, I just think, you know, some, some of the things you shared is so true. It's not just because of the cause 
that I'm involved in this. It's because of the people behind that. It's the women and the children and the men that need our help. And so let me just share with you a few of the uh, services that we offer at Living Well. And I would really encourage you all to be involved in that if you can. Um, one of the things that my heart, being a medical person, I come in with all the medical, you know, and the things that I can share that can sometimes shock the young people and say, wow, can we get that? Are you telling me I can't even kiss a guy? I might get, you know, a venereal disease in my mouth? Yeah, you can. I don't know if you knew that, but uh, I love to share with the young people how to be pure and how to be abstinent because that's what God calls us to, a holy and pure life. So that's one of the ministries, one of the, I would say, the forks, uh, the prongs in the fork that we have at Living Well, the prevention of an unplanned pregnancy. How do we do that? Young people in our churches, too, don't even realize that God is calling us to a pure life. And it's important to know why. It's not just because the Bible says so. The Bible says that, but it authenticates it with so many other reasons why we need to save ourselves. So that's the first part of Living Well's teaching that we want to teach young people, we want to teach in the church. The second part is intervention. What about the woman who comes in saying, I don't know, I might be pregnant, what do I do? Uh, we give her a pregnancy test, and by the way, all our services are free. There's a pregnancy test, we then do counseling for free, ultrasounds, we were the very first medical clinic in the country because it started with doctors. We didn't want to just give them a pregnancy test and say, now go find a doctor to confirm the pregnancy. So we have doctors and nurses, ultrasound techs, so they can have their ultrasound done and then they can sit and talk with a medical person and say, what happens now in my situation? So each case is so individual. I mean, I've been there and we've seen over 160,000 women in the last 38 years. And I can tell you each case is so unique, so unique, and each one needs our compassion and love. It's just not a carte blanche answer to everyone. So we do that and then we also want to take care of what if, by the way, we not only will take them through their pregnancy, we will give them referrals to doctors, to adoption clinics, uh, centers. Um, we we want, want to walk all the way through that pregnancy with them. Uh, counseling, professional counseling. We have some professional counselors that come into the clinic and counsel our patients, but we also train you to be counselors, to be that first line of when a woman walks in. And then, you know, we cannot uh, forget the fact that there are many, many sitting in our churches and everywhere. You know, there's every, let's see, the abortion rate in this country, it's one in three pregnancies ends in an abortion. That's pretty high. And when you realize that, you have to know there are people sitting right here even today that have had an abortion or for men who have been part of a woman's life where she's had an abortion. And we want to bring healing. And just like your pastor has said, 
You know, God is so, so gracious. I just love it. Just love the fact that this is the Father that we worship. He will take us all in if we will just get that help and go to him. Actually, that's all that is needed. Go to him and ask for forgiveness. He gives it to you. But sometimes we need help, and we do that. It's all confidential, so you can always sign up with us. And then we do some other things now. We're doing the financial planning services, which is writing up your trust or your will. It's for free to you. We are partnering with a ministry called the Financial Planning Ministry, and so we can offer that service to you for free. You can just sign up for a one-hour um, meeting, and then you can go and do your will or trust for free. A great service. All of you should do that. Uh, we do CPR training. We do Actually, we're doing a support group for people that are taking care of people, a caregivers ministry. You know, for those that are elderly, the women that are now widows, we're doing a support group for them. So I think we're trying to do everything that as pro-life we should be doing. It's not just what we're accused of. You just want to take care of that baby and then you don't care. So... I want to encourage you to sign up, get involved. We will train you to be counselors. Whether you come into the clinic and do it or not, it doesn't matter. At least you get some good training. And um, there's so many, so many ways you can get involved. There is a sign-up sheet. There are materials in the back. I'll be here for a little bit. Go ahead and sign up. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Gita. Uh, let's close in prayer. We're going to pray and thank God and ask him to continue helping Living Well Pregnancy Center, and we'll close also this message. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that, we've, that we are able to get just even that small glimpse of the good work you have been doing, the hard work that you have been doing through Living Well Pregnancy Centers. We thank you for 38 years of faithfulness, and we pray for so many more so much more practical care, emotional and spiritual care, restoration, healing, services provided for women, children, and, and men as well in need. Lord, thank you for this ministry. Thank you for Dr. Gita's heart, which reflects Jesus' heart so profoundly, and for all who are serving in various ways uh, for this organization and Lord, we pray that you would continue to use us as Christ Central to, to help in whatever ways you call us to as well, Lord. And God, we do pray at the end of the day, Lord, for, for your gospel to be so clear to everyone in this room, no matter what we've done. Lord, we pray that your love, your compassion would shine so brightly. We pray that your word would truly be a lamp at our feet, especially in the midst of just confusing times where we're hearing so many different messages from the left and the right. Oh, Lord, we pray ultimately that you would make us a compassionate people. Help us not to just be receivers. We know, we recognize we are such receivers of your great compassion, but help us to do something with that. Help us to give it away. Help us to love the orphan and the widow. Oh, how we need your help to do this. We are too small as individuals. Our church, as Christ Central, we are too small. But Lord, we know you are big. Your love is big. Your provision is big. Your care is so big. So lead us, we pray. Bless 
us, bless and use us to be such a blessing, we pray, uh, in small ways and big, in the ways that you call every single one of us to, for the glory of Jesus and for the good of all those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.